0: Hello and welcome to the Last Edit Podcast. I am Citizen Sleeve and this is my amazing friend, Silver Hawkins. And if you don't know already, if you haven't watched us before, uh, this is a weekly film podcast where we alternate between our choice of film and then we discuss it in depth. This week is quite a special one for me. Um, Prior, we we talked about Silver's favourite film, which is, of course, Miller's Crossing. And this week we're going to discuss... The magnificent cyberpunk opus that is Ridley Scott's 1982 classic, Blade Runner. Uh came out on the same day as John Carpenter's The Thing, for those of you who are interested. Great weekend. I wish I'd been older than three. <laughs> it would have been an amazing film weekend. And only a year so, after Alien. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alien was 79, so yeah. It's... Or no, it's, Yeah, so three years, yeah. No, three years, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I figured, I thought Alien was 81 for some reason, yeah. But no, it's 79, yeah, you're right.
0: Yeah, so the only reason I I it's cemented in my well, I, no film dates, but it's my year of birth, so it's like Alien. I was born in the year of Alien. Yeah. Hell yeah! So Blade Runner, um, it's it, it's it, I've got a lot to talk about. Um, I'll, I'll let you speak quickly in a minute, and we'll just do a little quick uh, kind of overview. So Blade Runner is based on Philip K. Dick's um, short novel, um, Brand, short story. The electric I say. Sheep. Yeah, exactly. It, and it, and it, a, it, it
1: is a novel. It's not really a short story. It's a novel.
0: Yeah, it's it's a bit yeah. Um, and Philip K. Dick, for those who don't know, is a purveyor of futurism, a purveyor of, of often, often things to do with um, um, consciousness and machines and all these. Minority Report, for instance, a lot of films um, are based on on his work. A total recall. A total recall, absolutely. Uh, and Blade Runner is, is a very odd one, because when it came out, it was a very different cut from what we're going to discuss. The original cut had narration the original cut had um, scenes that were later removed because they altered the tone of the film. Uh, even Harrison Ford, when he was recording the narration, hated doing it. So he made it as monosyllabic and monotone as he could so they didn't use it, which they did in the original cut. But it cost $35 million to make. It made $28 million. I don't think at the time audiences really knew what to make of Blade Runner because it was so very different from anything else that had really come before it. It's you know, one of the first of its ilk, the first, you know, Technomancer, the, the novel alongside neuromancer and, and things like that at the time. But Blade Runner was the the, the most visual f- interpretation of the cyberpunk movement that I we'd ever seen before. But it's a very slow film. It's I a think, very, I think probably the closest comparison in
1: terms of tone that you're going to get in sci-fi is uh, Space Odyssey 2001.
0: Yeah, yeah, in yeah, absolutely yeah that that seriousness and that um yeah that that high level of thematics and thinking about you know what is consciousness how does it work you know all it will come to that anyway so it was a film that really didn't it wasn't even crit- critically successful when it first came out it just didn't really do that well people didn't know what to make of it and a lot of audiences struggled with it with its its ponderous and especially for the first hour or so it's a very ponderous mysterious detective film noir that that has this retrofitted futurism and yeah it, it was incredibly distinct but it wasn't really until the director's cuts and then subsequent cuts and you know the real birth of that kind of movement in things like video games um dnd you know that then suddenly this film became uh, more and more of a, of a cult film and just developed into one of the most influential films there's ever been uh, put to celluloid
1: i mean i I don't know. I think it was even even at the time, bef- even before, I mean the director's cut came out in 91, so yeah. a decade after. I think it's, I mean throughout the, 80, the 80s, like just Blade Runner's visual influence is distinctly noticeable. Oh, everywhere. I mean, yeah, I mean it, it was a cult film even before the the director's cut. I mean, the director's cut certainly I think expanded on it, but I think there's no doubt that it was a cult film even like in the years
0: oh, immediately I, I, it was after said, its release. It, I think it began as a cult film, really. Because the people yeah. who very really liked it vehemently liked it. The aesthetic, the tone, the themes, the characters. But... More than that, I think I think in between that period, the release and that 91 director's cut, there was several different cinema cuts, several different versions of the film that were slowly kind of becoming yep. what the director's cut would become, and I think that also helped, because back then, you and I know, we were talking about VHSs and DVDs, the proliferation of media hadn't really happened in in a digital sense, so... It was this mysterious thing; these different versions of the film, and and what was missing, and what had been, you know, added to it. The unicorn, a dream sequence, is a very famous addition in the director's cut and, and the prior cinema cut, but yeah. but the removal of not just the narration but the happy ending, which we'll will probably come to in a little bit. Just those little differences, and then a lot of overhauling in in some aspects of the structure. But really, at its core, it's, the, it's that same film. It's, it, the director's cut just does a, a much better job. Now, we'll be talking specifically about the final cut, which is you know what is considered to be the final version of that film. But we both know a bit about Blade Runner, so we'll be faring back to all the different cuts and, and, and things that we think maybe should be in it, shouldn't be in it. So I'm going to stop talking now because I could just do this forever. So. Have you read the book? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right.
1: We yeah, can, a long time ago. We can touch on that as well. Um, 'cause I yeah absolutely that well. um, but yeah, no um yeah, i mean it's it's one of my favorites as well um like it hits all the right notes for me um it's funny though like when i-rewatched w- it again for for this podcast, I noticed one thing that or a couple of things that I haven't really noticed before where there are a couple of kind of jarring cuts in early on, like one is um The way the initial interview um, between um, I forget what Holden and Leon. No,
0: no, no. I know who you mean. Oh, 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 yes. Sorry, Holden and um, and Leon and Leon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. When uh, Holden is giving him the Voigt Kampf um, in order to determine whether he's a replicant or not. Um, uh, We we should probably start off with the fact that the film basically takes place in the future, or what was the future at the time, twenty nineteen. Um, which is now here we are uh no flying cars though Um, no flying cars no but um (laughs) but yeah and it's a time where um humanity has been able to develop um Mm. human-like androids that are so human-like that they can basically pass for humans and they've Mm. mainly been used for slave labor on off-world colonies and such work more
0: human than human that's our motto work,
1: work in hazardous environments um and they've uh, basically some of them rebelled, and that's led to a ban on all of uh, all androids on on Earth. And there are mm. like special police units called Blade Runner units that then hunt down these uh, androids that are loose on Earth. Um, mm. And the m- movie's main character, Rick Deckard, uh, played by Harrison Ford, is one of these Blade Runners. And he is then tasked with um, hunting down a squad of six replicants that that land on Earth, Um, although two of them die off-camera. Yeah. And only, like, four are really in the film. Um, But, yeah, the film starts out with with an interview between Holden, who is also a Blade Runner, interviewing uh, Leon, uh, who is trying to infiltrate the Tyrell Corporation as a new employee. And he's giving him like the Void kampf test, which is a test of, it's a series of questions as, and a machine that then um, measures like pupil dilation and such. As, mm. as the person being tested answers these questions and it's designed to, um, to measure the evocation, emotional responses and such. Um, and uh, the test culminates when Leon shoots Holden. And the the scene where he shoots Holton is edited really weirdly. Um, yeah, I noticed. Like, yeah, it, it's not really <laughs> very convincing um, in the way it's it's edited. It's it,
0: it just kind of stands out from the rest of the movie. And does the exact same problem with um, M Emma Walsh plays Brian, and Bryant calls him yeah. Deckard. We'll get to that. But there's the the part where he's introducing Deckard to the to the replicants, and for some reason, there's a bit where he speaks, and the end of a sentence hasn't finished, and a cut happens and cuts to a reaction, and it doesn't quite work. It's a bit bit similar to that. I don't quite yeah. know And there's structurally there's another, why they did there's it. There's
1: another moment with Bryant, too, which is the very first moment we even see him, which is when Deckard is taken to the police station by Gaff. And we the get door. the really, yeah. really really beautiful shot of the police station, and it uh, pans down into Brian's office. Yeah. Hmm. But then there's a cut right before Deckard actually opens the door and steps into the office. Yeah. Like, for a split second, which is really weird, because like normally you would just see that whole scene being done in one take. But here there's just, yeah. like, this one cut, and really sort of takes you out of the moment. Yeah. Um,
0: but well, it's set up to do it in one take. That's why there's a bloody hole in the ceiling. I mean, yeah. that's the point—to <laughs> be able to, you know, yes. cascade down into the. But yeah, there are. I mean, I have very few criticisms of this film. Oh, I, me I, too. I, but I have the perspective of other people, so we'll certainly talk about things they might not. And, and I think one of them is that there is only early on, really, just those few moments where structurally the editing isn't quite right. It's not. It's not bad or anything. It's just a bit. Di- not. It's dis- a little jarring. Yeah. Yeah, there's a mo- it, jarring is the right word, especially yeah. from like the standard that we've I don't know
1: we've sort of established in the past I don't know twenty, thirty, forty years, like of how yeah. of how these things are generally done. Like it's, but I mean the stuff some of the stuff that's on display here in Blade Runner was really innovative for for, for the time.
0: Oh, um, massive! I mean, let, let let's talk about the world and its influence. Um, I mean straight away we can talk about. Uh, Things have changed now. I mean, I I, I watched um, a a little documentary about Mr. Robot, the Amazon series, and how that is kind of the new cyberpunk because, in a contemporary sense, because cyberpunk now, the notion of it is very different to the way it originated. The origination was advertising billboards everywhere, saturating the landscape, Uh, the the class system broken down, so the high-rises at the very top of the rich and powerful at the bottom in the slums of the poorest. And... The world's kind of moved on from that notion because advertising is now in the palm of our hand permanently. So that, that that's slightly changed. But in terms of technology and aesthetics, wow, this film. Um, the Esper machine is essentially Photoshop before Photoshop. This giant mechanical machine that you can zoom into photos and identify bits and pieces. Yep. It's, it's, a, it's almost like the, the physical, technical version of what Photoshop... W- w- way beyond that, obviously, but you know, what the origins could have been. The voigt machine, this way of identifying... Human to replicant, and and you said the the visual tells the emotional responses and how you do that. But then flying cars, uh the dystopian cities where uh, you know the poverty it d- d- does exist in this way, and things like favelas across the world. There's so much of it, not uh, not just even aesthetically, but also in sound. Vangel- Vangelis's soundtrack for this is my favourite soundtrack to anything that exists in the world. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, just...
1: it's it's the only. Sin- I think like we've talked about that but to me it's the only like 80s synthesizer score
0: that still holds up uh manual yeah. is
1: the score for blade runner
0: yeah i just that opening i mean i remember when i first saw it i think i was about 11 or 12 and when i saw that opening uh, uh uh the flames blow out of the um out of the industrial areas yeah um the the spinners flying past spinners the flying cars uh, for those who don't know flying past and the sound they make and then do it's like a lumin and then that that really the tone shifts and we and then we get that cut into the eye the close up yeah and then the Tyrell corporation i would never seen anything like it and quite honestly i it's not been into, surpassed, I mean in terms of like the opening
1: shot it's up there with the opening shot of Star Wars and new hope where you have the star destroyer coming in yeah like yeah, I remember tr- tr- truly iconic I remember um like I finally got the chance to see a new hope in the cinema uh when back when they launched uh the special editions oh, special in, editions in what was it ninety seven ninety eight like yeah right around ninety seven yeah and I finally got the chance to see it in the movie theater and I saw it in like the biggest theater here, which is also where I got the chance to see um Blade Runner's Final Cut eventually. Um but yeah, like look seeing that Star Destroyer come in, like the, mm. the vibrations and the room just blew me away and, and Blade Runner's um like opening shot just does the same thing. It it's they're up there with like with the biggest and greatest in,
0: in movie history for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and and to get the cohesion right. I mean, straight up, we have to talk about the fact that. This is this is a film that that there was no CGI. It wasn't there was no CGI. Everything is physically produced. The models are so intricate and so well developed and so well lit. That in itself, I mean, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful to look at. That even the blimp, you know, the, the blimp that says "Come to an off-world colony for a chance to begin again," moving across the skyline. And then coming back down to to deck outside, ordering noodles. Two, two, yeah. four. Two, No, fine. <laughs> I should I should
1: point out though that like that like the visual design of of like the city and and like the cyberpunk aesthetic was not really original to Blade Runner. Like the Bre- Blade Runner. Metro-
0: took... Metropolis.
1: Not not even Metropolis. Like Blade Runner specifically, much like Star Wars did to a, to a large extent, took. Um, I don't know like 70 or 80% of the visual design from a French comic book or a Belgian comic book artist um yeah named Mobius, um uh, or Mobius, uh who was really fa- that the actually named Jean Chirot, but um who became really really famous uh in the 70s uh like he founded like the heavy metal comic book um uh, one of the one of the founders of that and he just became his work just became immensely prevalent to where it really sort of infused nearly all science fiction like the visual concept artists mm. of of science fiction at the time.
0: Well, Sid Sid who like, was the yeah, production and, designer and, on Blade Runner, and heavily and influenced,
1: and Ra- and Ralph McQuarrie, uh, yeah, concept artist on Star Wars, uh, at the time were both really heavily influenced by by Mubio's, like to the mm. point where they even like specific storyboard panels are like. Just one to one, nearly copies literal recreation comic, comic yeah. book panels from 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 Mobius Comics. Um, so yeah, there are a lot of like influences, but, but but Blade Runner just sort of manages to pull them all in into this beautiful confluence of of influ- influences
0: and stuff that just really works. Yeah, I think one of the beauties of this film, which which is why it's remained my favorite film since I saw it, is its depth. You scratch the surface in this film, and there is so much depth to almost everything you see. Even even inconsequential characters. Um, every, every character has a level of depth that you don't often see. Every theme has a level of... Like, this is essential. If you're going to boil it right down, this is a film noir detective story. But it's so much more than that, because it moves past that, because it starts talking about you know, machines and consciousness and and... Uh, existence and the existential sense of, of of who you are and what you are and, and what are replicants can they be human, all these questions that, that go far beyond what a tra- traditional detective film noir would but it still maintains that aesthetic maintains that style and that mood there was there was some like when um, okay we should do a little bit more of a narrative I guess character wise, so Deckard obviously is the, is the Blade Runner, his captain is Brian who so basically calls him in, he's retired Um, Because Holden's. Oh, Deckard. Yeah, Deckard is retired. Yeah, so he's called in by Brian, who, as the police chief, basically clicks his fingers and uh, gets uh, Gaff to go and grab him, bring him in. In in a lovely scene in the spinner again, and heading towards the Torelco. Sorry, heading towards the police station, um, and the roof. I I love that because it's the the cover of the poster. It's oh, yeah. Uh, And basically, he's he's put to task to capture or eliminate these four well eliminate not really
1: capture isn't really an option yeah
0: so pris is this pleasure model. you know
1: again sorry sorry to interrupt but again in in um like science fiction sort of convention is established sort of by 1984 and and like dystopian futures we have newspeak because
0: you don't kill the replicants you retire them you retire them yeah yeah exactly i love that (laughs) Now you said speak, City Speak as well, just the, the, that hotchpotch language they use in the slums around, around um Los Angeles. Yeah, that was something
1: that J- James almost
0: basically just developed. He his, invented on his himself, own. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is amazing. I have the cast for this. Oh just wow. Um so the full replicants are Pris, she's a, a what's described by um, by Emma Waltz's Bryant as a basic pleasure model. And it kinda of in, in that little scene it displays their intelligence and their strength and stuff. Um Zora is a combat specialist. Um, and then you've got Leon, who is just played brilliantly by Brian James. He's just a straight up. He's not dumb, but he's I don't know the thug of the group, but he's also thoughtful at times. Some of the th- some of the things he says. But uh, he's, he's basically the hard labor one, the the yeah. loader unit
1: who gets uh, tasked with carrying all the heavy stuff uh, on the off world mining colonies.
0: Yeah, dependably strong. And then finally we have the, the leader of the four who is played sensationally by uh, Ruka Hauer, and that's Roy Batty, who is Tyrell. Eldon Tyrell is the head of the Tyrell Corporation who essentially created Replicants. Yeah, um, and as he calls he, calls he in, is the newest model, the Nexus 6. Yeah, the, the prodigal son, as as Tyrell calls him. Oh, man. Uh, I don't think there's a weak performance in this film. I think every single central character, every single uh, ancillary character... It's just beautifully performed. Chew. So so the replicants are trying... Uh, we, okay, I'll do the little setup first. So the replicants are basically... The, the, the whole point of what they come to Earth for, back to Earth, is to try and find a cure for the insect dates. The fact that they don't have longevity. Built into them is a four-year lifespan. And when that four-year lifespan ends, they automatically die. They shut down. They want to get past that. They want to live. They're starting to develop identities and memories and lives and they want that to carry on they they want to live as as humans do but they can't find a way to do it so they try and work their way through people within tyrell to get to elden tyrell to find out if there's a way they can live longer and one of the first people they they go and find is chu who is the eye doctor eye doctor um i creator and just again i mean not only is the scene, he and Leon are pro- get, walk past this um, this weirdly lit street with with neon and there's bikers going past and and go into this room, which is uh, very low temperature obviously because he's working with um, with the, with the eyes and has to make sure that they are protected from disease bacteria and all that stuff. but just the way that batty and Leon like Leon wanders the room, picks out the eye from, um, what liquid is it? Liquid um, nitrogen or something, yeah. very cold. Will freeze your hand and, and break most people. And kind of that, just a little nod to him being a replicant. So Chu then knows. And- but I mean, even then, even then, Chu, Chu basically knows even before he does
1: that. Because yeah. they, they go and confront him and he says, uh, you're not supposed to be here. It's illegal for you to be here. Like on earth, presumably. That, at yeah. least that was my understanding that he knows in that moment that there are replicants and that replicants shouldn't be on earth, which is where that line comes from.
0: Yeah. You can't be here. You know, be here and, and his performance as well. Just in that little role is again, I just I, I can't applaud the, the performances. Yeah, he's I don't I forget his name. But intricacy. He's, he's, he's one of the most
1: like pervasively used uh, Chinese American actors. Like he's in a lot, of John Car- he's in a few John Carpenter films. Usually, always gets these like smaller, uh, side character Chinese roles.
0: Um... Yeah, but he, I think, is a, is brilliant. And the way the scene plays out with with him, you know, Leon behind him ripping off the suit that keeps him warm, and he starts shivering. Just the intricacy of that performance, and then he obviously suggests that well we want to see tyrell tyrells a difficult man to see roy batty says and he says you'll need to go and uh, yeah they tried to sebastian. see tyrell
1: and two of them died trying yeah. to break into the tyrell yeah. corporation which yeah, is why exactly. leon then tried to infiltrate it and got caught by holden and had to shoot holden
0: yeah and then uh, jeff sebastian they have to find and the whole build up to that is i also think is is absolutely wonderful yeah i could discuss with, with press yeah yeah so so we haven't seen Pris up until this point. Um Pris is hanging around well, in the rain, it's it's hammering down with rain. Um she's got some kind of um, rubbish and paper bags covering her and she's sleeping on the floor. It's clearly a ploy set up by Roy to to try and ingratiate herself into the life of J. Sebastian, who is this weird genetic inventor, genetic designer who creates his own little I, buddies.
1: I don't know that it's set set up by Roy specifically, though. I think Pris knows enough to set that up on her own.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, he's obviously told her, this is the person that we need yeah, to yeah. see. And then she, I think you, she goes on yeah, her own initiative. I think yeah. you might have the best, you know, way to, to, to get to him, whereas if we just turn up, we might not, you know, try yeah. different tactics, at least. And so he comes home, she wakes up, she smashes his car window, she tells him she he, she's cold and hungry. And he invites her in, into uh, just this. And
1: played by Daryl Hannah, by the way. Uh,
0: Play and she's amazing as Pris as well. I, I, th- I don't think she's been in a better performance. I, I a better role. I think I think this is her best role. I've seen her a lot I of think, very good I stuff. I think the only one that's, that comes across as... Kill Bill. Well,
1: uh, yeah, Kill Bill. And I mean, really, the only one part I remember her from is, um, Oh, what's the one with where she's the mermaid. With, uh, oh, with Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Yeah. A wet, wet.
0: Yeah. No splash. No, not wet. Splash. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> All the water objectives before we finally find one that really yeah. works. But yeah, splash. Um, I-, I think she's amazing. She's this kind of. She's a she's she's a femme fatale. She's unhinged, but also very playful, and when later on in the film when she puts on the makeup and she gets properly involved in in, in fights and stuff. Whoa, she's crazy. She's very crazy. But she's invited in by J. Sebastian, and he's got this rare condition, which means he looks far older than he is. He ages more quickly. And he's created these two mini replicants i guess <laughs> but they're more like low level ais that wander around his house and bump into things and make cute noises yeah in the I think form of like teddy bears and dolls yeah yeah and there's that little um, like basically with basically the long just nose. animatronics yeah yeah like like a kid would have dolls or toys but but yeah far beyond that and they're brilliant they wander around yeah. the, like when when she first enters they go oh, good evening jf clickety click and then yeah. off they go bump into a door and turn left or something. And JF is of course, is played by uh, William
1: Sanderson who's oh, and, yeah, really, really good in, in this film. Um, like also really good in like the only part I he's, he's played like minor roles as well as, yeah. as, as a minor character actor, but he's really good in HBO Deadwood as, um, as E.B. Farnham, one of my favorite characters in, in television history.
0: Something I still need to watch. It's another thing on the list. Um, yeah, I mean, and the room, J.F. Sebastian's um, floor, I guess. But so basically, this film is, is what we call retrofitted, for those um, who are watching us who don't know what kind of what we're talking about. Retrofitting was a term that was almost created by Blade Runner, and it's taking an environment and retrofitting it with things that make it look like it's already been lived in. It's a very simple concept, but they use the Bradbury Building, which is a very famous um, film... Building that's used in lots of different films, and they retrofitted it and created this environment for J. Sebastian to live in. And wow, the lighting. The... Yeah, when the uh, advertising blimp flies overhead, yeah. Mm, the curiosities in his room as well.
1: Wow. Yeah, it's really cluttered. Feels really lived in.
0: Yeah, and there's like life size dolls. Things that are moving, little whirring noises. Almost like a an obscure curiosity shop, you know, you used to get back in the day. They don't really exist anymore. But you'd go in and see all these crazy, otherworldly things that you, you'd never see anywhere else. And I think that that's just sets him apart as this weird, odd, separate character who's very isolated and events all these crazy things. So they kind of hit it off. And... From there, it all starts picking up pace a little bit. Um, I guess we should move on to to Sean Young. Um, that whole scene where she she's played she's called Rachel, who's this uh, another Nexus Six, and Deckard is sent to Tyrell to see if he can put the machine on it to prove she's a replicant, to see how well the replicant knows it what it is or doesn't know what it is. And that, for me, is also one of the well, best... Well, really, scenes.
1: he said there to, to see whether the, um, the Void Kampf will catch a Nexus 6, because that's what they don't know. Is or, is the Nexus Nexus 6 line now so good that it can actually fool or trick the Void Kampf,
0: which is why the exactly, yeah.
1: record, record goes to Tyrell?
0: Um, and, and that scene where they enter Tyrell's office, the sun is, is, is kind of beaming through. Is one of the yeah, most the beautifully. It, it's so well lit. It's, so, it's such a wonderful atmosphere that's established just through that lighting, and then Tyrell presses the button, and the I don't know the opaque semi digi blinds come down. It's like oh, the music as well is awesome, and they have that little exchange. Do, do you like our owl? Is it real? No. Was it expensive? Very. And they sit down. He sets up the machine. Um, I love Eldon Tyrell in this. I just, he's supposed to be God. That's the point. He's supposed to be, you know, the, the replicant's idea of God and the way he speaks about more, more what what is it? Um, more human than human is our mission here. Um, our motto, yeah. Our motto, yeah. Just the way he looks, the giant glasses, that he's got this, it's almost like a, a quiet because, intelligence because he, authority.
1: He, he, I mean, he, he... Uh Deckard puts Rachel under the test because um, Tyrell says he wants Deckard to give him a false positive before he provides him with yeah. a real positive. Before he actually provides him with a Nexus 6, he wants him to try it on a human in order to ostensibly give him a false positive. And then um, Deckard puts Rachel under the Void Cap test and lo and behold, it turns out she's actually a replicant. Mm. Only it takes him... Normally it takes like 20 to 30 questions to catch a replicant, but with a Nexus 6 like Rachel, or she's possibly even a generation beyond Nexus 6, um, which is something that is sort of mentioned in in 2049, uh, the sequel. Um, But yeah, but he puts her on the test, and where it normally takes 20, 30 questions, with Rachel it takes 100 uh, in order to figure out that she's actually a replicant. And then Tyrell reveals to, to Deckard that he started implanting the re- replicants, uh, that Rachel is, is an experimental where, model where they've started to implant memories in yeah. order to give her, because they found that because of the four year lifespan, um, like their, their lack of I- identity from like a, a base of memories, um, mm. really sort of engendered a lot of conflict. And, um, they're to, emotionally stunted, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, I'm trying thing, trying to to provide them with like they're trying sort of so they're trying to like provide them with a foundational buffer uh, in yeah. terms of like a memory and a past life. Uh,
0: yeah, to give them some kind of base to work from rather than essentially a blank step, slate. Yeah, and that's something um,
1: that that really really shakes Deckard. Um,
0: I like a few of the lines. Um, there's, there's that one where uh, Rachel says, "Are you testing whether I'm a lesbian or a Mr. Deckard?" <laughs> yeah. and, and a bit at the end with the um, uh, the butterfly and the killing jar." and just the, the way it plays out is really cool. And Joe Turkle, as Eldon Terrell, he, he gives this highly intelligent ease ease of flow of language and this this amazing intellectual authority. No. Any scene he's in. And I think, again, he just plays that character so wonderfully, wonderfully well. So then the relationship, essentially, between Deckard and Rachel kind of begins. Yeah, I mean, um, I think
1: that's... If if we're talking about just, like, plot points and not, not the technical aspects, like, the relationship between Deckard and and Rachel is really, I think, like, the biggest weakness in, in the movie, uh, It. There isn't really a whole lot of chemistry between Harrison and Sean Young. No, there isn't. And a lot of that is down to things that actually happened on set, um which comes through on the camera. Um mm. and and yeah, it's just it's kinda weird <laughs> like throughout. Um Yeah but, it's But I mean that that being said, to me, like the big one of the biggest um one of the best scenes, if not the best my favorite scene in the movie is after um, they've met a Tyrell and after he's learned that she's a replicant. And so he goes back to his apartment and Rachel comes to see him there because um, Tyrell will no, no longer talk to her and she doesn't know what's happening. Like she can't possibly be a replicant. She has a memory of a full life that she's lived since she was mm. born. Um, and, and then Deckard starts listing all these memories from her childhood, like relating them to her that she hasn't shared with anyone like her most intimate intimate memories um and tells her that they were they were basically the memories of I think Tyrell's niece um yeah niece yeah and uh and yeah and then he go and then it it basically breaks her cuz she she learns everything she knows the the reality that she thought she knew is fake it's it's made up um and you can see that that also makes a, a deep Deep, deep-seated deep impression on, on Deckard, who then tries to tell it. no, no, I was, it was a joke. No, I'll make you a drink. And then he goes to the kitchen, tries to fix her a drink, and she takes off. And then he sits down in what what to me is the most compelling scene in, in the film, and he just surrounds himself with all his own family photos, like his own past, his own memories. And pretty, the film never says it, but pretty obviously questions himself. Um... Yeah. Uh, And the nature of his own identity. And this is where Scott, with the final, with the director's cut and the final cut, to me, essentially ruins the film to the point where I have to completely ignore the scene to even enjoy it, where he puts in the unicorn. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, the unicorn dream, and in doing so, he completely removes the ambivalence as to whether or not Deckard is a replicant. And to me, the movie does not work if Deckard is a replicant because Mm. the entire thesis of the movie is the like the, the motto of to me is the motto of Tyrell, like more human than human that the replicants that Deckard is hunting are basically more human than Deckard who's the human hunting them because he's just doing that as this hunting them in this really sort of mechanical way even though he's, like, empathetic towards them, he's still hunting them down and basically yeah. kind of robotic in the function of his job. And the, the, the replicates really just want to live and, and extend their life. Um, and that whole theme gets completely subverted if Deckard is a replicant. It just doesn't really work for me on any level. Also, like, of course, it goes against the book as well because yeah. in the book, Deckard is human. Like, he, he questions himself in the book and whether he is actually a replicant. But no, he is human in the book. Um, like, the, the whole replicant thing is just specifically Scott's interpretation. It's also, of course, a disagreement with Harrison Ford that he's had because Harrison thinks, no,
0: Deckard is is human. Um, well, even now, in interviews, if you ask the two... Yeah. <laughs> that's what they say because that's what they believed and that's what they wanted to... I mean, the part of the problem with the unicorn scene is it's not just that it thematically now tries to at least muddy the water, if not essentially make the assertion that he is a replicant. Well,
1: it does make the assertion, because, I mean, the assertion is brought home by Gaff making the origami yeah, yeah, figure. Yeah, making the end. origami.
0: But it's the, it's, again, the jarring nature. It's a bit like the ending for the original cut, which t- didn't fit in aesthetic terms, it didn't fit in, in, in audible, it didn't fit in thematic terms, it just Seem tacked on, and that's what the unicorn dream feels to me. Yeah, it it's it's basically
1: that. just it's just Scott going. Nah, this is what I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This 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 is a bit from a film I'm making three years time called Legend, but I've already started doing the the <laughs> bit of the unicorn. So I'll just I'll stick a little bit. Maybe it's product placement, Silver. Maybe maybe yeah. we're maybe we're not thinking as cleverly True. as Scott seemed to think he was. <laughs> but yeah, I I totally agree. Um, I want to back up a little bit because. I want to just talk about the way that he starts unraveling the case and finding the replicants. So after Leon... Well, that, 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 told...
1: that's not even going back, because that, that is basically that scene where he... That scene where he like sits, sits at the piano with his memories is where he notices the photograph and he sort of breaks the case, as it were.
0: No, it starts earlier. If you remember he goes to see Leon's flat? Uh, I happened. mean, true, yeah. Yeah. and he finds those yeah but you're right yeah that's really but yes, yes so he finds he finds these photos on leon's flat that seem quite unusual and that ties into what silver's just mentioned so as he's going through his, his own memories and we get that you know a lot of this film is about memory and and uh, how how you create it and what does it mean does it mean that you're human all these things but he then as he's scrabbling through those photos he finds these couple of photos and one of them is of zora but it's obscured um, she can barely be seen. She's off in the background. And there's a mirror in the way, and it's a quite convoluted photo. And he enters that photo into the um, uh, the Esper machine and manages to find what looks like a scale of some kind. Now, obviously, this is a, a world in which real animals kind of they they exist, but we never see them or we barely no, see them.
1: They they don't actually really exist anymore in Blade Runner. Like they're pretty much that's one of the things about the setting like animals are pretty much extinct pretty much the yeah. only the only only animals you can get are uh, uh replicant animals basically artificial yes. animals uh because like the nuclear holocaust that or disaster or whatever it was that um that basically radiated the earth and gave like outside of Los. the movie takes place in los angeles we should say yeah. uh that i think we kind of missed that um but outside of the city uh, is, I mean, it's not really mentioned in the movie, but But this is in the book where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Outside yeah. of LA is basically this irradiated, and 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 it and it's kind of in twenty forty nine as well. It is, yeah. It's basically this irradiated wasteland that they they re- refer to as the
0: Kibble. Um, yeah, yeah, and I, I guess I should go as well. When when Deckard finds the photos, he also um, there's a bath in the room, and he notices scales on there. So he takes a sample of that scale, and that they're the two clues. So he enters it into the into the Esper machine, and he notices a, a place, and decides that he'll go to anod- Anodoid Row, and he'll take the scale and he'll t- he'll try and find out where this what this scale belongs to, what animal, where could it come from? And he finds all these different vendors, and then he ends up going to one particular vendor who's a snake specialist. stop questioning him, and this basically leads into a bar. And to Zora, but there's a bit before we end up meeting Zora, and that that whole scene, which is a very violent scene, a very kind of um, the the pace at that point. I think that's that's the point at which the pace of the film really picks up. The, it still slows down. It's not like really, you know John Wick three or something. It's it's more ponderous than that. But the last half an hour or so in pace terms, the action really really kicks up. But there's that little bit beforehand when he. He goes into the bar, he sees, the, I can't remember the guy now, the bull guy who gives him the drink, he owns the bar. Um, he talks about his license being an order pal. But then he tries to go and call Rachel. And he just says he wants to see her. And she she says he says where he is and she says, that's not my kind of place. And that's it. And then he goes to kind of investigate and try and find Zora. And when he comes across her, he plays this weird, geeky inspector who's looking for people yeah, and is concerned that, with the protection is, of...
1: is immensely creepy.
0: And the fact that he goes from that voice to his own voice and then back to that voice is a bit weird as well. But that, that yeah. voice is a bit weird. But Zora, she already knows what's going on. She's already clicked that he's something other than he, he says he is. And, well, yeah, it all kind of kicks yeah, off. She... Which is really surprising because she was so subtle. <laughs> oh, yeah, really. <laughs> So she's basically been dancing at the club. She's got um, a snake around her. She comes off stage. She follows her in, starts talking to her. And then she gets in the shower, um, comes out of the shower, puts her top on. He asks him to help. And then smack, down he goes, and off she runs. The the following scene, again, I think, is absolutely bloody brilliant. It's structured well. It's shot wonderfully. The colour use. So he chases her through the street. He eventually shoots her in the back and she falls through these series of plate glass windows and each one shatters in slow-mo and she falls and slowly drops down. Amazing to see. Yeah. I think my only real issue with
1: that scene is why doesn't she kill Deckard? Like it's, it's mentioned in, in the briefing that she's part of a hit murder squad, um, Sora. Yeah. And she just basically knocks him down and then runs off like a scared girl or, or whatever. Um, like a scared person. Um, it's a bit. It's a bit weird that she just doesn't
0: just kill him, but that she just. yeah, well, yeah you'd think that he would just. Run she wind. would just snap at snap his neck or something. If she, yeah, you know, she's that strong, yes. and a, of a murder squad. I mean, my god. Yeah. Like what level is murder squad in the? Oh, you don't want to mess with them. It says murder in the title to start with. Yeah. So, but yeah, so, so she goes down quite easily. Um. And and then um the the police surround him. He shows his on a badge. They turn her over. They. Rock her body left and right because her eyes don't move like humans do. So that's to tell that it's, it, she's a replicant. Um, and then off he wanders, uh, and then he comes across Leon in like a little um, alleyway with some bins. And Leon is none too pleased because Zora was the replicant. That you know they were together. But that's the insinuation um, with, yeah. the with the bath and stuff in the beginning. And again, he has some amazing limes. Uh, have you ever had an itch? you can't scratch, and then time to die. And just as Leon is about to just squish Deckard's head, Rachel turns up behind him and shoots him in the head. Yeah. I
1: mean, it doesn't... Uh, No, sorry, go on.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, I, I should mention that Leon has beaten the living hell out of Deckard up to this point. Yeah, and that's, Slanted him against that is that is, and...
1: A, that is a running motif in the film, because yeah. Deckard basically <laughs> gets beat up by everyone. He gets kind of beat up by Zora, he gets beat up by Leon, and he gets beat up by uh, Pris, and he gets Pris beat up... Pris as well, yeah. By yeah, pretty much all of the replicants <laughs> beat yeah. him up, um, which also kind of goes a little bit against the whole like Deckard is a replicant thing. I think to an extent, um, well, he's not strong enough. He you know, but it, clearly, but, but he could. I mean, he could be designed to be weaker than or not because he's designed to be a more human replicant. Maybe would be the underlying. yeah, mm,
0: but and and this was a question that all of us thought played with until twenty forty nine. I mean. We all knew it, really, but it's it's something that's been there for a lot Because that's the main question people came out of this film with. It wasn't what I came out with, but a lot of people have said to me that's the what they think the crux of the film is, is, replic- is Deckard a replicant? It's not that at all. There's so many more important things going on than whether a character who's got a uniform well, I mean,
1: dream is... The, I mean, the question of whether Deckard is a replicant or not is... I mean, it, it, it is one of the central tenets of the film because it goes to the central tenet of what is life. Because yeah, well, you can't be yeah. sure... When you're at the point where you can't be sure if you are artificial or not, isn't artificial
0: life life? But that's the problem, as you said. I think because the unicorn dream is inserted, yeah, it's so heavy-handed, because it, it removes that uncertainty.
1: Because yeah, then, and, and and then that's he's just the a replicant, of, and he's just, the of just, just of like the other four. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Exactly. And then
1: then also the audience has no like human like gateway or. Yeah, then they're
0: maybe a bit uneasy about who do I... Is this the human character to lean on? Is it not? So, Zora's down, Leon is down, and now we start seeing a little bit more of of Pris and Roy. Uh, Roy turns up at J.F. Sebastian's house. Um, I think uh, Pris says something, I've got a friend who wants to meet you. and It's it's weird because he still sees them as machine people, so he asks them to... Show him something cool, show him something different. And um, I think Roy Batty says, we're not machines, we're physical. I think, therefore, I am, Pris says. And he walks over, I think Pris actually is, he walks over to a boiling egg in boiling hot water and just lifts the egg out and throws it to JF. And he goes, (laughs) "Ah!" he's quite a goofy character in some ways because he's such a mad, crazy designer. And in the end, Roy very childlike he is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and Roy comes across a chess game and starts talking to him about it, and realises it's a chess game played between himself and Tyrell, and that he's only well been between Tyrell, JF and Tyrell, JF yeah. and Tyrell, yeah. And so Roy Batty sees this as an opportunity, a way in to see Tyrell, and so he, it's JF kind of because obviously Roy's really insisting now, and JF calls up Tyrell to tell him a move. They're, they've gone to, to the corporation, they're in the lift, and he calls him on the intercom and says he um, a specific chess move. And Terrell goes over to the board very casually and goes, you better come off, Sebastian. <laughs> and then we get one of the most iconic scenes in the film. Yeah, uh, Roy Batty meets his father. There's a bit when... They, they, they talk first, obviously. So, so he knows, he knows that Roy Batty has been coming here. He, he wonders why it's taken him so long. But there's a bit where they start talking about the incept dates and is there any way to change it. And you see Batty's demeanor change. Like, God has betrayed him. Like, his creators betrayed him. And betrayed Pris and betrayed his people. And the moment when he takes his, his father, you know, God, in his hands... And kisses him and then squeezes the life out of him and the way that the lighting is in the room and the intensity of roy batty's performance in his eyes oh man oh and then the kind of crunch that you hear and he just lets him drop and the music goes oh i just i it's it's a film that gives me goosebumps just talking about it certain parts of it and that and that that's one of those moments you know that the the prodigal son, the Jesus figure, the Messiah, kills his father, kills the creator. A uh, very profound moment in the film.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then unfortunately, um J- JF um I mean it's it's implied that he that he pays, right? Uh yeah. That they kill him. Uh yeah. Like it's also implied
0: that they kill Chu, even though we never see it. Um I absolutely think that happened. Yeah, it's it's definitely implied. I think I think maybe they just wanted to save some, maybe it was budget as well, or even the rating. I mean, I mean know, it, it's, too,
1: it's also not necessary, it's not important. It's, it's, it's not, it's really. not at all. No, it's, no. it's not
0: that type of film, it doesn't need it, yeah. And, and often violence like that, we've talked about Reservoir Dogs before in the Mr. Blonde ear cutting off sequence that you see nothing of, often implied violence is far more effective than real violence, because you seeing violence often takes yeah. away from what you can construct in that space. So then the kind of the, the, the last portion of the film starts, starts kicking in. Uh, Deckard now needs to find Pris and needs to find Roy Batty. He's kind of tracked down J.F. Sebastian's um, um, home. And when he first enters, obviously the, the two small characters do their little intro first. Clickety click and then walk off again. And he walks into this, this Jeff Sebastian's main room w- again with the creepy dolls and the weird um, the weird f- bits and pieces dotted around that look very otherworldly and different. And Pris has just stood still like a mannequin with a veil across her painted in white. And I think that I mean it's, it's, it's interesting that scene because it kind of goes to
1: show like the contrast between the initial the first time we arrive at that location it kind of comes off as kind of a home. And then when Deckard yeah. gets there, it kind of comes off as an alien location.
0: Yeah, then the, the more mood like changes. A, more, more
1: like a horror location. Then.
0: Absolutely. I think the lighting changes a bit. Yeah, um, All those noises that sounded kind of cool with characters talking around them start becoming quite creepy. And and obviously, it's not just the fact that Pris is stood still at, like a mannequin. The whole point, I think, of Ridley Scott's... Um, of that scene is to suggest that we often think of ai like a mannequin like an unreal thing you know that that play on that notion and then of course priss decides yep we're gonna kick off and that fight is crazy absolutely she's back flipping across the room screaming jumping in the air landing on deckard's shoulders kind of throttling the life out of him with her thighs and he just spends like five minutes trying to whack her into any solid surface or wall he can find. <laughs> finally, of course, he, he takes her down and he shoots her a few times, and she very violently thrashes on the floor until she, she's finally dead. Uh, her tongue um, um, sticks out a bit, and that's important in, in a minute. <coughs> um, and then he basically has to wait, because Roy Batty is there. He's, he's, he know He's on his way. So he goes off to another room. He starts searching around, and... Roy Batty, at this point, has found Pris. is obviously incredibly upset. Um, kisses her one last time. And obviously, at this point, after especially after the converse, conversation with Tyrell, the murder of Tyrell, um, he knows he's going to die soon. They, they're almost at the end of the four years. Yeah. So they kind of come across each other, and he's in one room, and <laughs> Deckard's in another room, And he's trying to shoot him, and he misses. And Roy Batty basically smacks his head through the wall, uh, makes a comment, grabs his arm, pulls the arm through, breaks his fingers, gives him his gun back, and then says, right, it's kind of uh, time to go at it. And that scene, I think, again, is... Rocker is just so good in this film. I love him anyway in a lot of films, but in this film, in this role in particular, he brings... uh... A humanity to something and uh the intellect he has ah just you know his love for pris and then the way the film ends he's sublime he's absolutely sublime yeah, I mean, I think it's time to talk about the ending uh,
1: where, up on the roof where they confront each other um where um Deckard basically tries to chase um chase after uh batty and uh, uh, Batty uh Betty jumps off. A roof uh, onto another roof. Uh, Deckard tries the same, but he doesn't succeed. And so um, Batty grabs him and actually saves his life. Uh, and that I want to tell you, Ridley. You know, I appreciate you as a filmmaker, but that doesn't work if Deckard is a replicant. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Because the whole point that of little that little contradiction. The is whole mine.
1: point of that is the replicant decides to save the human. The human wanted to kill the replicant. More human than human. Yeah. To me, um, and that completely—that's—that's—that's that's, that's com- completely gone. If De- if Deckard is a replicant, um, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean that, and then and then they just sit together. He pulls Deckard up onto the roof, and they just sit, and he talks about all the things he's seen uh, in the improvised monologue that that Woodcutter. Came up with um, like in part, like some of it is that he's incorporated lines and built in that, that were there yeah. in the script. So it's not like it's completely one hundred percent Rutger Hauer, but it's basically that he takes all this stuff and works it together into basically an original monologue that's that basically relates um, uh, Batty's experiences uh, off-world, the things he's seen, and how all of this is going to disappear when he dies. Um, it's going to be like he never existed and that that
0: monologue is it's beautiful yes the it sea, is and sea beams dancing um in ten houses gate and, uh, like tears memories like tears in rain will be lost in time i oh, yeah and it, it makes my and heartache it, it, listening it, it, to because it. it because it's
1: it's a compelling uh, um commentary on on the humanity's greatest fear which is our own mortality and the yeah. concept that um everything in our lives is actually finite um which you know, is both sort of terrifying and beautiful uh, at the same time.
0: And of course he's holding the the white dove as well. yeah, and, and that
1: uh, that 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 was one of the scenes I was the most grateful for got changed in in the final cut because in in the older cuts, even the director's cut, like the the cut when he releases the dove is so jarring because you have this it's this it's at night, rain is pouring. It's, it's really hands sort of seedy. Into- <laughs> and then, then you get the cut to the dove that flies off, and it's like in this industrial location, and it's com- clear blue sky yeah. that the dove's, yeah. dove flies off into. That was the yeah, old It's like uh, everything gets suddenly. Yeah. Well, it's, just, it's exactly the same problem again
0: as the original opening to the original cut. Yeah. They get in that car, and it's like. Uh, what, what's happened? Why? Why is it sunny? What? What? Yeah. Looks like you're driving to a beach. What the hell has happened to the irradiated wasteland that was supposed to be beyond this place? Yeah. But yeah, that those little shifts in tone, I think, uh, uh, were definitely problematic at the time. But yeah, it's a bit lesser now. Flying off into the sun. Yeah. Well, I just uh, there's so there's so many wonderful elements about this film. I mean, as we've mentioned, there are a few inconsistencies here and there, and, and there are a few problems. The main one is the unicorn dream. I just don't think it was necessary. I think if you leave that less tangible, then it becomes even more of an interesting talking point, even though Absolutely. it's really counter, even though it's really throughout the film. You know, ma- making it so overt is 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 a mistake. But apart from that, I mean, I, I don't think there's there are films. There are certainly films that are incredibly influential, and this is. Up there with and maybe beyond a lot of them. Jaws, exceptionally influential film. Star was exceptionally influential. If you go back to French Nouvelle uh, Vague, you know, Jules gym in the techniques it used, very we can go back about both Birth of a Nation. Citizen but, Kane. Well, Citizen Kane, you know. Um but this film for, for, for modern audiences, for what it would inspire in science fiction and more contemporary fiction of films, etc. Wow! Did this and your romance, the the novel that came out just about the same time, just kick cyberpunk into the mainstream. It took a little while to embed, but the influence it's had on on all forms of media, especially games. I mean, Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven coming out next year, end of this year, next year. Yeah, it's almost insurmountable to think about. I mean, after it came out, advertising boards started becoming more prominent everywhere. Um, technology caught up to, it's almost Star Trek in many ways, you know, you see a lot of things in earlier Star Trek episodes Yeah. that then eventually become technology. And we've and also now basically
1: polluted our planet to the extent where we're looking to yeah. move off world.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, it's ridiculous. And AI, of course, now, we're at a point now where we're starting to not just develop AI in the sense of what we consider a replicant to be, the, the weird, odd-looking, um double-take robots that we see with the rubber skin and stuff but the actual ai that's out there now which is far more complex and impressive than i think we ever thought when, when we watched this film it's if you ever um i don't know if you've read it but if if, if you guys are really interested in the, in the film production how it was made sid Mead's, put produ- all you know hampton Fancher and david peoples how they wrote the script go and read a book by michael Dealey called future Noir*. It's been out for a very, very long time. I had it at university, but um, it's a really, really good deep dive into its it. there's creation.
1: also a tremendous documentary I think it's called Running Days or something
0: yes um, uh, I don't think it's called that it's something similar though, but I do know what you mean. I haven't seen it in a very, very long time but yeah but yeah there was
1: definitely which talks about like the entire production of the film from like yeah. pre production where Fincher basically working on the script with with Philip k. dick and stuff um we should also mention I think we forgot that the book is entitled uh, "Dwayne George Dream of Electric Sheep? Electric Sheep, yeah. Which is I think a much better title than Blade Runner. Um much more evocative especially of the themes
0: that the f- film sort of addresses. It's a, it's a beautiful title, but you can see why a Hollywood exec would go yeah. This is your second film with Ridley Scott? You want to Dream of Electric? Sh-? No, you're okay. All right, Blade Runner. You can kind of see why they would have gone for that. Yeah. But yeah, uh, if you've never seen Blade Runner, I I mean look yes it's a slow film for those who are not used to films that have a pace which isn't typical Hollywood fur. It's very ponderous, it's very thoughtful, it doesn't um it, it doesn't elongate things on purpose. Everything fits everything fits beautifully. But you need to be aware that you need to have some patience, just just as with Middle Crossing, just a lot of these great films take time and you it, need to get you involved in the film's form. It's also a
1: movie that needs a canvas. Um, if you watch this on your mobile phone, uh, oh gonna, God no! <laughs> you're not you're probably not going to enjoy it. Um, you need to watch it on a on a canvas, um, like on a big screen television, uh, movie theater, wherever you can, uh, wherever you have the opportunity to, to see it on a, a big screen, because you need you need the visuals to sort of be allowed to. To assert it themselves.
0: yeah. The, the the aesthetic needs to breathe because it's so beautiful and it's yeah. so detailed. And you're going to miss all kinds of real intricacies if you watch it on anything other than the biggest scale that you can. Yeah. I mean, I've seen I've seen it at the cinema because I was lucky enough to to see it at university at the cinema. It obviously, it'd been a long time out then, and there were a few limited um, places that was shown when the final cut was was released. Yeah. But yeah, if you can just go and see it on on the bigger screen because. For all its depth and for all its um, themes and its its really detailed narrative, as a visual spectacle, it's quite beautiful. Unlike almost anything else, apart from now twenty forty nine, many things are kind of similar. I've tried it. Fifth Element being a very very obvious one: flying cars, tall high rises, um, and the the, the the lower classes at the bottom of um, of, of these high rises. But there's nothing quite like it. The way it's shot, the way it feels, the, the, the way... And, and as you said in the cinema, to hear the rumble of the music, to hear the, the, the synth that the Evangelist used and the way it plays into those beautiful visuals is uh, it's something quite sublime to see. It really, yeah. really is.
1: It really uses uh, both visuals, audio, with the music and to, to really reinforce its themes and, and really drive them home.
0: Yeah, it really it's really It's a brilliant film. Right, I'm going to stop there because we, we, I, I could, we could talk for another hour. There's so many little bits that, I mean, just taking apart scenes, the, sh- the way the shots are constructed. Oh, just... But if you haven't seen it, please go and see it. And I would suggest following up with 2049, which is the sequel yes. I never thought I wanted, that I never thought would work, that Villeneuve blew out of the water, in my opinion.
1: Uh, I completely agree.
0: Uh, absolutely a worthy sequel. I don't think there's a director who is more perfect for that. I'm Roger Deakins, cinematography. It's also it's also really like it's also
1: really funny to see Harrison Ford a year after Raiders basically kind of playing mm-hmm. the anti-Indiana Jones because there isn't yeah. really anything likable about Deckard other than the no. fact that he's played by Harrison Ford who is sort of inherently likable. Um at least at least uh, sort of middle-aged Harrison Ford is. Um like he was when I grew up, like Harrison Ford was probably my favorite actor. Just mm. that, that that charisma sort of... I mean, Indiana Jones.
0: <laughs> so, solo really, and Indy, man. It's really... By the time he'd done this, he'd been solo twice. Yeah, but to me,
1: even more than solo, he was just Indiana Jones. Yeah. That's basically
0: yeah. it. <laughs> the adventurer. I think I was, I was the same growing up. I think Star Wars had many iconic characters, but Indy is just Indy. And no I mean, one my, else I've seen my, could play him. My my
1: favourite scene in all of Indiana Jones' history is um, like the scene where... Um, Right, right, in the, right, right in the start with with Alfred Molina and um, Molina says, "Throw me the idol, I throw you the whip," and then he throws him the the idol, but um, Molina just drops the whip and laughs mm. and runs off, and so India tries to jump uh, the gap, the over the the chasm or whatever, um, and he he almost he kind of makes it, he's there and he grabs onto this um like this um I forget the English word for it um oh the like vine. vine the vine yeah yeah yeah. Um and he grabs onto it and he smiles and then the vine starts yeah. giving over and he goes, Oh no, oh no, oh no, oh ah! no. Yeah. That
0: yeah,
1: that yeah. that is quintessential Indiana Jones to me. Like the going from yeah. the frying pan frying pan into the fire constantly. And and Harrison Ford is just so good at that.
0: Yeah. And Deckard, um, you're right, is the antithesis of that. Yeah, pretty much. He's he's slightly abusive to Rachel. Yeah, he's not a nice person particularly, and he's
1: like genuinely creepy in the scene with Sora.
0: Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that weird, that weird voice and the way he performs that is. Yeah, and, I think that's that's also a have, reason I don't think it clients, did well. Clients might drill holes into your closet, dirty little you know. hole. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's also maybe one of the reasons why I initially didn't do that well at the box office or critically because you'd had this this actor who'd been in big, larger-than-life, adventurous, happy, friendly roles that the audience really connected with. Deckard is not that character. No. He's he's not going to win you over in that way. You know, Blade Runner's certainly none of those. We'll have to do a, um, an indie trilogy discussion at some point. That'd be really fun. Um, but, yeah. of course, there are only three Indiana <laughs> films that have ever been made, so we don't need to mention anything <laughs> else in regard to... Although Young Indiana Jones... Yeah, Young Indiana Jones is quite well. good. Yeah, oh. where um Sean there were there Sean, were no aliens in Indiana Jones. I forget
1: his, I forget his last name. Sean, uh, who played Indiana. Sean Sean Patrick Flannery.
0: Oh yes, yes, that was the. Uh, the it's Lisa actually one. Quite, quite good as young and Indiana it was, Jones. Was it River Phoenix who played him initially?
1: No, yeah, that was in uh, only in Last Crusade.
0: Oh, of course, the opening. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. yeah oh, that would have been great if he'd done one as well.
1: Yeah, but well, anyway, I mean, unfortunately, uh, Fate kind of interviewed.
0: Yeah, interview intervened. That. Yeah, he. I think he would have made a great young, and he? He, did, he, he did well in that opening. Well, anyway, I hope you've really enjoyed our discussion of Blade Runner. As I said, it's my favourite film. Uh, it's never not been my favourite film. The moment I saw it, nothing has ever... There are films that come close, but nothing has ever surpassed it in my eyes, and I think at this age now, it's so ingrained. I've seen Blade Runner over 100 times. I might have seen it... 150 times i watch it so many times probably, a year i probably haven't seen quite that many i've seen it like
1: 15 or 16 but i know it by heart by heart by now.
0: Yeah. yeah i i don't know what it is i get mildly obsessed like when 29 came out uh, uh i basically watched that for two weeks solid at least once a day <laughs> I just i i i it felt like i was a film student again because i don't really do that anymore because i haven't got the time but when I was a film student, and then into, into my twenties, I became very obsessed by certain films. I had right. to watch them and watch them and watch them and watch them. And Blade Runner was the kind of the the, the the originator of that, and it's never stopped. So yeah, I watch it a ton, all the bloody time. But if you haven't seen it, I implore you to go and see it. It's one of the best films ever made. It's the best cyberpunk film ever made. It has some of the best performances from these actors that they will ever do in their careers. Yeah. The soundtrack is stunning, and it's one of the most gorgeous films ever made to look at. Go and watch it. For sure. It. Now, I have no idea what we're going to watch next week, because you, you You mentioned a few different things. I think there was yeah. one thing you mentioned, but what have you decided then for next week? I think I've actually sort of gone with trying
1: something completely different. Um, okay. And actually going for a movie that I haven't actually seen, but Ooh, I've okay. always wanted to see it. Um, uh, I've wanted to see it for 20 years, um, which is Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. I've just wow, okay, <laughs> never had the like the option or possibility of watching it because I could never find it. I could never track it down anywhere. Um, yeah, it's basically the story of Gilbert and Sullivan. Um, yeah, a British, basically opera, popular opera um, mm. writers and and conductors uh, were very good at what they did. Um, and like the clips I've seen from the film the stuff I've read about it it sounds really really good there are some really impressive shots here really impressive scene, I mean, scenes rather that are done in one take with rehearsals and yeah. stuff uh, really intricate um, yeah I really want to see it um, and I finally found uh, found an outlet for it where I can actually see it and I really wanted to see it and talk about it um, so yeah Mike Lee's uh,
0: Topsy Turvy will be next I hope that sounds that sounds great to me I have seen it before um, not for a very long time, and I think only once, maybe twice. Um, so I, I remember bits of it. And you're right, there are, there are some tracking shots that you. will My mind automatically, when I first saw it, went to Goodfellas.
1: Right. Yeah. They're not quite the same. They're not quite the same. Like when um, Ray Liotta steps
0: into the club. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's one of the best shots ever in film. Full yeah. stop. But but yeah, there are there are some beautiful tracking shots, long takes that that really glide through the the environment and the set design. You're going to absolutely love. Yeah,
1: learn. I mean, it, that's what it won the Academy
0: Award for, I think, that year. Yes. It was, uh, yeah, costumes it and set design. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely gorgeous, it really is. Well, hey, that that was brilliant. I'm looking forward to it. Again, I haven't seen it in a very long time. Um, I studied Mike Lee for a little bit. Secrets and Lies was always the one that was... Yeah. You must see Secrets and Lies. A great film, obviously, as well. Very, very different. Yeah,
1: I mean, he's a great filmmaker.
0: Yeah. Right, talk to us in the comments, guys. Talk to us about Blade Runner. Uh, I adore it. Silver adores it. The, we have niggles with it, but for me, it's one of the best films I've made, the same as Silver. Talk to us about Blade Runner. Talk to us about your favourite films. Talk to us about our choice next week. Have you seen Topsy Survy? Did, did you like it? Do you have problems with it? Talk to us about film. That's what we're here for. Absolutely. Literally, that's what we're here for. Right, thank you very much for watching. We shall be back very soon. Take it easy. Take care.